is Jessie Olson. I am originally from Guelph, Ontario, where I grew up, and I've been living in Toronto now for about eight years. So a little bit of a mess. Um, I had kind of a bit of a wonky childhood. My parents divorced when I was young. My dad found God and got really Christian. Uh, And yeah, I kind of moved around a little bit when I was a kid and then got a little bit more settled when I moved uh, into Guelph. I was actually in a small town the first like 12 years of my life. Um, and then, yeah, kind of got more settled in Guelph and life. I started to kind of come into who I was as a person, I think, uh, once I did that shift. So yeah, the, the beginning of life was a little bit intense, but it definitely turned me into the strong independent person I am today. High school started off really bad. The elementary school I went to was really small. We had like a graduating class of 17 people and everyone was friends. So when I started high school in Guelph, I knew no one and I they didn't really like me. <laughs> and it was really my first time not being liked by the masses. And I got bullied pretty, pretty bad in grade nine, grade 10. And I think it was like halfway through grade 10, I started to meet some great people who I was really kind of connecting with. And then grade 11 and grade 12 got easier. I got involved with the school newspaper and arts council and kind of found some of the like arty indie kids who fit in a little bit more with who I was. And I was just such a quiet, more soft-spoken person back then. And that I think that was kind of like a protective mechanism to make sure I, I could continue to stay under the radar. And as I started to kind of grow my network of friends later in high school, I think I started to really kind of come out of my shell and figure out who I was, like who I wanted to be, um, and start kind of had a bit of my own voice, which was really, really neat. It's interesting. I... Close to the end of high school, like I actually met, uh, I got a boyfriend when I was 16. We knew each other from church because I was like a big religious kid then. And I think that was part of where I started to kind of come into my own was even just connecting within the church because it did give me community. And I still think that's like one of the biggest benefits of religion, especially when you're a teen, is the community you can find with it that's really safe and comfortable. So... When I started, I yeah, I started dating and that's kind of when, again, now I, it was like more, I got a little bit louder and started to just be a little bit more comfortable in my own skin. Yeah, so after, kind of around that time was when I had been working in like commission sales um, for Sears, <laughs> which dates me a little bit. <laughs> uh And I had my first gig with, I worked with Sears for like seven years and I was doing, it started with like just retail. And then I was working on the marketing team doing in-store announcements, like attention customers and welcome to Sears Guelph. (laughs) So that kind of scratched the itch. I had like a bit of an idea that I wanted to do broadcasting or something of some kind. So that was kind of playing around with that idea a little bit. But then an opportunity came up to move into major appliance sales, like fridges and stoves and stuff. And I was curious about sales and kind of just like took a leap and tried that out and made a ton of money doing that for a couple of years, which was great. And then Sears started to have some bigger competitors and things weren't looking hot. So I ended up flipping over to the fitness industry, which I was in the fitness industry for seven or eight years. And that was just a wild ride. I I had worked with a personal trainer and lost some weight. And th- that was then my confidence like really showed up. And I was like, it had kind of started turning into again, this even louder version of myself. And so I was a personal trainer for a couple of years. And then I got into management. I was working for a company that wasn't the best. And I did enjoy growing through it and kind of moving up the ladder. I started managing a small club, medium-sized club, super club. Then I switched and worked for a smaller fitness company when that was a little bit too much. And that definitely taught me a lot about confidence and leadership and a lot of really, really cool things, but also completely messed up 
my sense of self, my relationship with food, my relationship with uh, exercise and just movement in general, like really mess things up a bit for me. So when I left the fitness industry, I actually got fired uh, and I haven't been fired very many times in my life. So that was a little bit of a shake. And that happened, how long ago was that now? Maybe five years ago. Uh, and that was then I flipped to another career. I'm on my, I don't know, fifth or sixth career now. I I keep, it's just like if I'm doing something and it doesn't feel like it's good for me and it's serving me and I am have an opportunity to excel in it, then it usually means it's time for me to find something new. I did. Yeah. So we got married at 22. Wouldn't recommend. Uh, we we were very in love. We had a lovely relationship. Like we were together for a decade at the end of all of it. And we, yeah, we just, we fell in love young. I was uh, his first girlfriend. He was my first boyfriend. We had all of our first together. But once we got married at 22 and then a couple of years after that, that's when I was I was more confident. I really kind of coming into who I was as a person. And I was a totally different person than I was when we first met and really realized that I missed my chance to be with anyone else and was suddenly regretting that and feeling horny all the time. Uh, so when we, it was probably two years before we ended things, we decided to open up our relationship and really like kind of give that a try we're like maybe we just need to explore that side of ourselves and see what happens and where we come out and uh no one in Guelph was doing open relationships um and this is like a decade ago there was no information on this there was no books it was like it was really not a mainstream thing so we really messily fumbled our way through that for a while and uh, he hooked up with a couple of people and then got a girlfriend. Eventually I hooked up with every person who lives in the junction. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it didn't work out for us, but the last six months of our relationship, we moved to Toronto together and moving to Toronto, downloading Tinder for the first time. It was, that was the beginning of the end, I think. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't regret any things that we did in our relationship. And we did end things really amicably and just just knew that we were completely different people than we were when we were kids, when we got together. Um, and that opened me up to a whole new world in the city. And who I am now is entirely because of like that. I think that first year in the city really opened up the world for me as a whole. like Toronto was filled with opportunity you know like in a different way than Guelph was in Guelph I had shifted through different careers and I would find new things but Toronto was just this entity that felt like this promise of something more you know and it's it sounds a little cheesy or romantic but I think I really realized in Toronto I was meeting so many different people who came from so many different walks of life and were doing so many different things that I didn't even know were jobs or hobbies or passions or whatever. And it just opened me up to, I had created this really cool community in Guelph that I loved. And I've always been a people person, even when I was quieter and I've always wanted to help foster community. But I came to Toronto and suddenly I had like 18 different communities I could be a part of. And that like abundance that I could see opened up a ton of doors for me. And just really, I think I had this closed view of where I could go and what could be next. And all of a sudden there was like 3 million different options of what to do. And that was really exciting. In my early 20s, a friend of mine in Guelph started a like a comedy company and so they did an event called first timers which anyone could come up and do five minutes the only stipulation is you've never gotten on stage before so I did that and I had a blast with it and I ended up doing the second timers a few months later and then that was it it was like this little blip of a taste of comedy in my early 20s and then I was like that was fun did not expect to go back to it again more than a decade later <laughs> And it, it, 
the shows were interesting. Like they were kind of just like our circle and our extended circle. So it was a really safe way to try stand up for the first time. I, it, yeah, it also just got me out of my comfort zone. I had just kind of started really building my confidence. And so it was such a good time for me to test that out. But I like when I actually got into comedy just a couple of years ago, I had no like I didn't even remember my time there, you know, like I didn't connect the two of them at all because they seemed like such polar different experiences. But in that middle time when I moved to Toronto, that's when I started getting more into going to local comedy shows. So I fell in love with Toronto comedy Um especially like right before the pandemic which was not the best timing I was going to a lot more shows and then when things opened back up again I was going to tons of shows here in the city and really fell in love with not just comedy in general but like the local scene here in Toronto and that's what started to like light a bit of a fire under me that maybe there'd be something here I think it 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 felt like it didn't feel like, oh, yeah, let's try stand-up comedy. It was like, hey, let's try this thing that feels cool and outside my comfort zone. But there wasn't really a lot of a comedy scene in Guelph, so it just wasn't something that I was around. I went to lots of performances and shows and nights out, but it was all music-based. My ex-husband uh, was in a band, so like I would see tons of local com- like local music shows, and I went to tons of little concerts, but comedy just no one talked about it. Like nobody was doing it, so it it just didn't really seem like a real option to pursue it was like here's this fun thing we can do a couple of times but then now I tick that off my list I can kind of move on I started the podcast over the pandemic and the reason for that was I kind of had gone back to this like I want to do something in like the broadcasting realm or speaking realm And I had started a blog when my ex-husband and I first opened up our relationship um, that was called Fuck Me, I'm Married. And it was an anonymous blog. It never really took off, but I had fun writing it. And that was kind of my way of working through uh, what I was going through. And I think because of my background in religion, there was a lot of shame I had to work my way through when I was exploring my sexuality. And... I had really been thinking about like what would I do next and how did I want to do something around speaking or whatever. And this blog that I had started before, I loved doing, but I don't read blogs. I'm like, I might read blogs for like professional development or personal development, but I'm not reading blogs for pleasure. So it didn't really make sense for me to start writing another blog for pleasure. And that's where the podcast idea came in. So I wasn't listening to loads of podcasts. I had like a few podcasts that I listened to religiously. And so I worked all through the pandemic. I didn't have any time off. I was really lucky that I was working for a tech startup so I could keep working from home. But I needed a creative outlet and podcast seemed like a really cool option. So because I'd been going to so many comedy shows, I had all of these micro connections with different comedians. And that's just because I'm the kind of person who would go to a comedy show, sit in the front row, laugh really loud, engage, and then after, like, whatever, say hi to people, follow people on Instagram. I was a very supportive comedy fan. And because I would go, I'd like a comic and I'd go to a whole bunch of their shows. That was always a thing. I was, like, loyal as a fan. So all of a sudden I had dozens and dozens of comedians that I kind of knew and thought I'd shoot my shot and see who would want to be on the podcast. And everyone said yes. And I started having these really, really cool conversations. The early days was with like Natalie Norman, Allie Pierce, Dan James, John Moss, and Fiona O'Brien, just all these really amazing comedians and started to get more of a peek into what was going on? Like, what was this like behind the scenes? And I just found it so fascinating. And through the course of the first season of the podcast, doing a mix of comedian guest episodes, uh, solo episodes that were really spicy, like talking about some of the spicy stories, and then some more vulnerable episodes, just sharing about where I was at, I really kind of found my voice. And I decided to take a comedy class through Bad Dog, And initially, when I signed up for the course, I was just curious about the comedy writing process. I did not, I was not planning to go into comedy. Again, this was just like, this would be cool to learn, and then I can talk about it on the pod. 
So I did the class virtually and it was all it was all online because this was still kind of pandemic-y. And then I did my showcase at the end that was on Zoom. And I was like, well, Zoom comedy isn't what I want to be doing. But it was such an interesting experience. And I was really proud of the five minutes that I came up with. So I decided to just try an open mic in person when they had started back up again, just so I could be like, I did it. And I got on stage and I did my five minutes and I fell in love with it. And then I fucking turned my life around (laughs) to comedy. (laughs) And here we are. (laughs) Oh, it's honestly just like the most fun. I think that's the biggest thing is I love how fun it is. I love, I'm also, like, I like being the center of attention now. That's, like, not a thing I wanted at all when I was younger. And now I love being the life of a party. And I love making people laugh. And because I love writing, and I was a writer before this, this gives me a chance to really focus on being a smart but funny writer And surprising people with jokes. Like, I love when people are caught off guard by where a joke goes. And I love the community that I've really found within Toronto Comedy. And not just with comedians, but with the audience. Like, I've been so lucky to have a really, really cool crew of people start to come out to my shows really regularly and build some really incredible friendships with those people. And I think that was just something that I wasn't expecting to get out of it. So on one hand, I love the thrill of being on stage and making people laugh. It's validating. It's so hot. Like, I find it very powerful to, like, crush on stage as a woman. And it's also just, like, yeah, a really cool way to connect with other people and to build community within the city that just feels really warm and really comfy. kind of passively write all the time so if I think of something funny or stupid I usually just send myself a text uh, and that's kind of where I keep it some people use notes things in their phone I send myself a text and that's partially because a lot of these come up when I'm like drunk or like super baked and trying to figure out a notes app at the same time is too complicated so I just send myself a text and then once a week I go through my text to myself um, and then move that on to either like I have like a physical notebook I still like writing out physically and then eventually the physical write-out makes its way onto a document that I keep on my computer as well but I usually do once a week I'll go sit at a bar I usually go to uh, like my local spot here in the annex is a place called Crafty Coyote And I just sit at the bar, I'll get myself a couple of pints and just write and write stream of consciousness, try and work my way through all of the dumb thoughts I'd sent myself before and just see what comes out in the wash. So that's kind of my like weekly process. And then there's a bunch of different open mics I go to that really help me work through material. So there's a couple of cool mics in the city now that are like workshoppy kind of mics where you can get tags or get advice on different things. And I have a couple of different comedian friends who I'll meet up with and go for a drink and work through our stuff together, which I find really, really helpful as well. Open mics are a bit of a shit show. Um, Yeah, I feel like I could talk about the open mic scene in Toronto for four hours. It's really, it's, it's interesting. Like, it's definitely my opinion of it has shifted since I started. Uh, early days when I was going up to mics, I had always heard the mentality that like, if you want to be a comic, you need to get stage time as much as you can. It doesn't matter where it is, who it's for, whatever stage time, stage time, stage time. That's the key. And so I was forcing myself to go to some rooms that were super uncomfortable and really telling myself that that was what I had to do. And Basically, like the main things that would pop up is I'd go to an open mic. I would be one of maybe three femme comics there uh, on a list of 35. And of the 35, probably 10 would say something super fucked up, <laughs> like I, something racist or misogynistic or homophobic, transphobic, fat, shamey, uh, domestic abuse stuff, like really gross stuff. And not even cleverly written. Like, 
I, I think I've joked a couple of times that a super edgy comic could get a laugh out of me by accident if you're clever enough about it. But they're just a lot of the jokes were just really lazy writing. And I think that made it even worse because it was like, again, it's like you're not even trying. You're just being mean. So I had a friend of mine kind of like shake me and be like, this is really bad for your mental health. Like you need to go to less of these. And I also started getting targeted at some of these mics because I had started running safer space comedy shows and only booking vetted comics who I knew were going to fit that brand. And the first show I ran like sold out and then they kept selling out for a little while. And so that got a little bit of attention in the community and I got a lot of booking requests. Like, I mean, in the beginning I was getting like a dozen a day booking requests and of that dozen, nine weren't a fit. So it was really intense because they were just these guys were used to seeing me out all the time. So they're like, oh, we're buddies. <laughs> you would book me, uh, which is so backwards. But there was a string of mics. There was like three or four of them in a row where I was being like full name mentioned on stage um, it, as a, a way to like save a joke. So someone would say a joke that was really offensive. They wouldn't get laughs. And they would say like, oh, it's probably because Jesse Olsen is here. And that's so fucked. And there is a point where I have come around to realize how powerful that is. And there's a part of it that makes me realize that I'm taking up a lot of mental real estate in the minds of some of these comedians, which does feel pretty fucking cool. But I had also kind of set this rule for myself that when I went to an open mic, I would stay till the end. And this was, I just thought it was disrespectful when people would dip out right after their set. I knew it sucked to be on late and only have one person left there. So I just told myself I would stay. But then there was this string in a row where I was being personally attacked. There was jokes that were so wildly misogynistic or just full on like rape jokes that I was having a really hard time sitting through, but I would stick, try and stick it out. And that again was so bad for me. And I think I talked a lot about this on Instagram pretty publicly. And I think that's where I started to really realize how much support there was in the industry. And that if we could harness some of that community, we could use it for good. And that really inspired me to start like the Comedy Babe Mike Club, which is a group that I have going. And lit a fire under my ass that I should be continuing to run these safer space shows because it is something that's really necessary. And when I slowed down and stopped going to some of these open mics and just prioritized way nicer rooms, um, it was only like maybe like a month ago, this happened at an open mic for the first time in a long time. And I got first name, last name called out on stage because someone bombed and he decided to blame me. And in, in the moment, I was so upset. I, like, cried at Comedy Bar. That's not the vibe. That's, like, not what I would like to be doing. But it was so interesting to me because I the guy who said it, I'd met him once at a show, and we were great. Like, he, we had a really good talk. I thought we were fine, and that was months and months ago. And to realize that he's just been in these other rooms, like, hearing my name or whatever, that's kind of cool. <laughs> and... In the context of the show, like this was an, a, the bucket mic at Comedy Bar that was filled with audience members. And so people knew my name because I had gone up and done really well a few before him. But it, it, I didn't talk about doing safer space shows like there was no context for why he would mention my name. So the whole crowd was just like, what? Like, what? That just doesn't make sense to me. So, again, I w I've been able to find the humor in it. But open mics are a wild west world here in Toronto and I think that's why it's so important to be clear with new people who are coming into the industry like which rooms make sense for you to go in based on who you are as a comedian or who you are as a person because it's really easy to be just straight up bullied um, at open mics and that's been something I had to kind of deal with it did bring up some stuff for me from the past because I haven't been bullied in a really long time and didn't really expect it from 22 year old men in comedy but who knew
it was interesting. Like that was a weird night, obviously. And I, I had been working, I've been working in therapy about managing like how I react in conflict. And historically, when I have conflict with men, I cry. That's like, that's what, that's what happens. And that gets me out of the situation and gets me to support. And I've understood that. And I'm kind of working my way through that because in situations like with this guy, crying in front of him to me at the time felt like I would look weak. And that, and that was like playing into kind of like his narrative. And I had talked to him right after I got off stage or right after he got off stage. And I was like, hey, do we have beef that I don't know about? And I just and I was pretty calm about it. And he kind of just dismissed me. And so at the end of the show, when I was leaving, uh, he was standing right there. And so I kind of just avoided him. And but then we made eye contact for a second. And then I again was just trying to kind of dismiss him. And he's like, oh, it looks like this is still bothering you. So I was like, OK, we're going to do this now. Then we can do this now. So I kind of explained my side and I was like, it did just feel out of left field and it didn't make sense to the rest of the room. And I thought I was being really rational in my explanation. And he said that you're he just said you're being too sensitive and which obviously is like both misogynistic and gaslighty at the same time. And so I just yelled, wow, (laughs) because I was so floored that he would be that obvious (laughs) in his retort. And Obviously, he was trying to backpedal and like, I, I, I'm sure he regretted it and he was dealing with that on his own. And so I yelled, wow, when I turned and I left cab space and because I, I was like, they're well in. I was like, I'm going to be crying in two and a half seconds. Like, you got to get out of here. So I left the room and a bunch of people were sitting right there and kind of heard me yell, wow. And uh, I think it was Brandon Ash Muhammad made eye contact with me and said, are you okay? And I said, no. And then I just like booked it to the washroom. And within four seconds, there was like eight people in there with me. And I'm full out crying in the bathroom. And it was so helpful. Like it was exactly what I needed. And I think I've been unpacking this like when I cry in situations, it's like that's not me being weak. That's me getting out of a situation before something worse happens. Like maybe I say something I would regret and it's going to get me to support as fast as possible. And I think if I hadn't have talked to him, if I had have just I would have just left Comedy Bar and gone home and then I would have been alone and I would have been unpacking this on my own. But by choosing to deal with it there and then running into the washroom, Comedy Bar is a place that I feel so safe in. And I think that's why it was extra jarring. But as soon as I got out of being in front of him and I was literally surrounded by a mix of like new comedians who I've just met recently and then comics who I've been seeing do comedy forever. Like Natalie Norman was there and she was right in the bathroom with me. And it's so incredible that when stuff like this comes up, like everyone else in the room was right there and ready to support me. And I went home that night and I talked about it online and I had probably 60 comedians reach out to me about it. And that's men, women, like queer, straight, like a a mix of everyone. And I just really think that when I look at, like, I've only been in this industry, like, on stage and performing for like not even quite two years yet and the amount of people I've really connected with on like a real and vulnerable level is fucking incredible and I think there's something so unique about the comedy industry and comedy as a medium that it does allow you to be really transparent with people people that you don't know super well because we've all kind of bared our truth on stage and I think that does really separate people who bear their truth on stage and people who are mean on stage. And I think that's part of the divide. But I think there is just so much support. And I think part of that is because everyone who is in there supporting me has felt something shitty in their time doing comedy, too. And there is a part of that that I think unifies us. Producing is interesting. Producing is another one that I kind of fell my way into and then it took over my life. I uh, 
I started with running a show in November of 2021. That makes sense? Yeah. November 2021 was one year since I'd launched the podcast. So I was like, it would be really cool if I ran a show that had comedians I'd had on the podcast before and then would give me a chance to try hosting. And I'd also, I hadn't performed at Comedy Bar. Comedy Bar was my favorite club. I like had it on a pedestal. It was like this amazing place I wanted to be a part of. So I chased Comedy Bar for months to try and get a date. And I got lucky and I had a couple people vouch for me. And I got a Monday night slot in the main room and just did a Your Place or Mine one year anniversary show. And it's like sold out like 90 people on a Monday night, which was so bonkers. And so many people came out to it who listened to the podcast who I've never met before. And so that was also weird. <laughs> I was like, oh, there are all these strangers from the internet listening to me talk about getting off. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> and before that show, I, like, as an audience member, before I got into doing comedy, I had been to a lot of not great comedy shows. And I'd been to a lot of comedy shows that made me feel really shitty about who I was as a person. And part of that was over the pandemic, I went to a bunch of park shows that were being run by a certain comedian who uh, is known for being quite offensive. And I just didn't know that. So I would bring like groups of seven women to these park shows uh, and then have someone be like openly transphobic, which was super fucked. Uh, So... There was a bunch of those times and then even just times sitting at, at an open mic and having people do really fat shamey, really misogynistic jokes that just didn't that just made me feel really bad and really uncomfortable that I realized that if I was going to do this and I was going to try to run some shows, like, let's make sure I'm running them for audiences just like me. And so I could really speak to people who were a little nervous to go to comedy shows because they didn't want people to be mean to them. And they'd heard all these horror stories of what could happen at shows. So I sent out this big questionnaire to like 60 different comedians who barely knew me, which was hilarious. And it was because there's no information online about how to produce comedy shows. There's literally nothing. It doesn't tell you what to pay, how much, like it doesn't tell you what anything costs, like how long sets should be. There's just like no information. So I sent out this huge questionnaire about pay and what makes a show good and venues and set length and all this stuff. And I had like everyone respond. So that was also really cool and encouraging. And so I built, I got all this information and then was really methodical about how I would run a show. And my background's in sales and marketing now. So I I did want to think of this from a business standpoint and not just from being a comedian. And it was also just a way for me to get my foot in the door at Comedy Bar. So I did that show and turns out hosting was a whole new level of high that I just hadn't expected. And the show was so good and everyone was so funny. And the feeling of the crowd just having such a good time from start to finish. When I realized that I could curate an experience like that for someone that felt so fucking cool and was just like so much more than just doing a set of comedy. Like it was really it was bringing people together. It was also like treating the comics really well and making sure they were paid fairly and they had a great time. Like there's so many pieces of this that I think are so important in the big picture. And I'm hyper organized. And so I realized that if I created systems for this, then I could run shows that would be busy and I could get people to come out and, and I could be really methodical about it. But then it just made me realize with all the feedback from people after shows that they wanted shows like this. And there was an opportunity to create more shows that were openly safe space, but also super dirty. Because I think there is a realm of safer space comedy that's really clean and family friendly. And that is not at all what I do. (laughs) And I kind of wanted to find something that was in the middle where it was safe and cozy, but it was still dirty and raunchy. And we could, it could still be a late night fun thing. Like it didn't have to be this precious thing where no one could talk about anything. We talk about everything. We're just not assholes. (laughs) So I think the first one is figuring out, like curating your lineup and your roster of comedians. Like I vet everyone before I let anyone on my stage. And that has mean meant that I haven't had any fuck ups. 
Like I haven't had someone say something really fucked up on one of my shows, which is awesome. And I think vetting people in advance, it's more than just, oh yeah, this person vouched for you, you're good. It's also more than just like someone sending you a set. Because I've had super edgy guys send me a clean set and then see them at an open mic do something fucked. And I think what was important to me when I was creating my roster of who I wanted to book is, yes, I could book a, a really edgy comic and have them do a safe set for me. But I want my audience to follow all these comics and be a fangirl like I was. Like, I want them in it. And that means that if I'm booking you, I'm putting my, like, Jesse Olsen, your place or mine stamp of approval that you're a safer space comic. And there's obviously degrees to that. Like, I have people that I book that could do an edgier show and can be a little bit edgier if they want to. And that's the right room. And that's totally okay. But I didn't want to book people that would be randomly posting really fucked up stuff on Instagram. And so I think the the vetting process needs to go deeper than just like, here's a tape. What do you think? And I would be really open and be like, I haven't met you before. Just a heads up. This is the deal for my shows. Um, does that make sense for you? Yes or no? And I'd had people be like, you know what? Probably not a fit. And they would back out themselves, which is great. Or some people would kind of argue with me on it a little bit, which is usually just enough of a red flag that it's like, I think we're probably just not a fit. And I also was just at so many mics and hanging out in comedy clubs all the time that I wasn't really booking anyone I didn't know or hadn't seen. Like out of town comics who were vouched by people I was really close with, I was totally open to because they'd be really frank with me about their material. But there was a lot of people who really wanted spots and maybe I'd only seen them do a couple of jokes at a mic and I was kind of unsure. So I just wouldn't book them. And I think I'd rather err on the side of safety than risk it because, again, I've got a perfect track record right now. And on top of that, it's not just that the comics haven't fucked up on my stage. I also just don't really have comics bomb on my shows. And that's like that's something that I'm very proud of because I do think it's it's a mix of booking great comics and finding the right audience. And I have been so focused on marketing towards more like femme and queer heavy audiences. And those are the kind of people that love my shows. And I think for me, I wanted to make sure that at the end of the day, the audience had an amazing time and it was like exactly what like they knew what they were getting. That's why there's like condoms on my posters. Like it is, it says right on it, safer space comedy with sexy, not safe for work jokes. Like it's so transparent. I would never want someone to come into my show and be surprised with how much we talk about cum. Like we're very straightforward about that. So I wanted the audience to not only have a good time, but know exactly what they were walking into. Then I wanted the, I really wanted the comics to have the same experience where they were going to have a great time and they were going to be paid fairly but they also knew exactly what they were walking into. So they knew they were going to have an audience that's super down and dirty. Like they knew they were going to have an audience that was engaged, paying attention and laughing because that is the type of people that I'm curating. And I think those, like having that focus on ensuring both of those things happened meant that I also made money and got paid and have been able to build up a really positive reputation. When I started writing jokes, I would memorize the jokes exactly to a T with like the pauses between words so I could kind of repeat the same thing and really focus on that. And honestly, that stems from like with working in fitness and sales, like I'm a script person. I can memorize. I can like repeat it back. And so being in a room where I knew it's really just like going into a show where there's a very unlikely chance they will hate me. (laughs) Again, I might not be their favorite, but it's very unlikely that they will really dislike me. I think it just gives me the space to take a step back and like let the jokes happen. And I'm obviously now more comfortable with my material and having more fun playing around on stage. But when you're with a crowd of people who aren't just going to like start heckling or yell something out at you, It allows you to have like a pause between jokes where you can wait and see if there's like something else that's coming up where at at certain open mics, if there's a bunch of weird people there, I would be terrified of a pause because who knows what someone will shout at me. Like I had some weird stuff yelled before, right? Like, and I think that fear 
makes you rush through material. And when you know people aren't going to be dicks in the stage because we know this is a fun, cozy show, I can give it like 10 full seconds and decide where I want to go next. And that just means I'm able to surprise myself and where my mind goes. And it means that I feel comfortable playing with the crowd and asking questions. And I don't think that someone's going to totally derail me by saying something really weird. Like you see that stuff happen all the time. And I just, I, I, I've always been kind of afraid to talk about this on like any sort of a podcast, but I haven't really been heckled really bad yet. So again, the fear of saying it is that like the next show I do, I'm going to get heckled so hard. I've had people yell stuff and whatever, but I haven't really had a super bad heckle. But I do think that is because I spend more of my time in comfier rooms with people who aren't there to be in the show. They're there to enjoy a comedy show. And that's where some of these edgier rooms need to exist because they need to give those hecklers somewhere to go where they can and they're encouraged to be a part of the show. Like those are really, really important rooms. And I think the most ridiculous part of this whole thing in the reputation I'm building about running safer space shows is there seems to be dudes out there who think I have the power to like cancel people, which like, that's very sweet of you. But first of all, like who the fuck am I, you know, like, just because I'm not going to book you doesn't mean I hate you or even that I don't like your comedy. It just means that you're not a fit for my shows and I don't really want to hang out. Like that's really what it is. And I think, again, there's a part of it that feels powerful that it's like, cool, I'm glad you think that I have the power to do any of that. But that's not what this is about because I think anyone, like more people going to any comedy in Toronto is good for all of us. And those rooms have to exist to send the right people and the right comedians there so it makes sense for the other rooms to stay the way that they are. Oh, yeah. The pit. Oh, I spent a lot of time there this year. Should have been paying rent in that pit. I uh, So historically, I've always had pretty good mental health. I think... Again, my childhood was kind of fucked up and I had to deal with a lot of stuff and really become an adult really young and kind of manage my family in a lot of ways. And that just really meant that I had to be resilient. And I think, again, going through high school, I got really bullied, had to be resilient, needed to find a way through it. And into my 20s, whatever, I went through marriage and divorce. I moved to a new city. I had to be resilient. There was all this stuff that happened. And then the pandemic hit and then was here for a while and is still kind of here. And I just noticed when things started to come back and we all kind of started to go back out into the world again, when I would get knocked down, it was way harder to get up than I was before. And I was not prepared for that. And there was a couple of different things that happened and really knocked me out for like a couple of days, whether it was personal stuff or work stuff or comedy stuff. And I just suddenly wasn't this like force field of a person who could have everything deflect off of me. And I started to have a couple of sad days and kind of just kept an eye on them. And I thought that was fine. And then over the past year, I had a couple of experiences where I was knocked down and then I was out for like five days and not only not feeling great, but like wanting to stay in bed, loving staying in bed, like listening to sad music to cry more. And it was the first time that I felt the pull of the pit and calling it the pit has really helped I think to like I need to I need to give it a name so that I could identify that a it was a problem. Um, and I think when I'd seen people in the past struggling with anxiety and depression, I, I just never really related it entirely. And I think my last long-term partner I was with for three and a half years had really bad anxiety and depression and was medicated for it. And that caused some problems for us. He didn't always manage it great. And so that caused a lot of issues and gave me a, a new kind of a like new insight into it. But I think coming out of the pandemic and dealing with some anxiety and depression of my own and then also just realizing that like everyone maybe has some anxiety and depression um 
I think it all just made a little more sense for me. And in a way, it was worse because I was like, oh, okay, yeah, we're all in the pit. So, like, stay in the pit. Like, you know you love the pit. You don't have to talk to anyone. You can just cry. You don't have to get out of bed. You don't need to do anything. And feeling that pull of wanting to stay in the pit is what started to freak me out a little more because I can see how easy it is to just get lost in staying alone, not doing the things that are good for you and just trying to find your way how to coast through it. And I spent way more time in the pit over the last year than I should have. And I I think I got to a point where I recognized that it was a problem and there was a few episodes of the podcast where I was really vulnerable about it. And that was one of the hardest things that I have done. But I think I've historically been this really positive, optimistic, smiley, everything's awesome all the time person that it was so important for me to be really transparent with not only my listeners, but everyone in my life that I wasn't okay. And there was a really dark side to all of this that felt like shit and was way heavier than I had the strength to figure out. I had been talking for a long time about needing to get back into seeing a therapist because um, I've used therapy in the past a few different times, but usually to deal with a thing, like to deal with the divorce, to deal with issues with my mother. It was like, this is a thing I would do and I would make my way through it and then get back out of therapy where I think I just need a therapist, maybe all the time, even if it's not every week. But for maintenance, I think that's so important. But I've been working a job that doesn't have benefits and comedy doesn't really pay. And I make okay money at my nine to five, but it's not huge and whatever. Life in Toronto is expensive. So I was looking through all these therapists and they were all out of my price range. And it's been about six weeks now since I found a student therapist that I really click with. And oh my God, why the fuck did I wait so long? Because honestly, it's just like it's been such a shift in a short period of time with just managing my relationship with the pit. And I, I think I, it's not like I'm never going to be in the pit again. Like the, I know the pit is a part. It's like I have a pit in my apartment. You know what I mean? Like it's always going to be here. But I'm finding different ways to manage my emotions around the pit and like what I use the pit for, like when is the pit okay to spend a little bit of time, but then understanding that I have to talk through some of this stuff and being like the strong friend who's been through everything. I like, yeah, I can go on Instagram and I can go on the podcast and I can like talk about some of the shit that's happening, but I don't really have anyone to talk about it with who isn't dealing with their own versions of the pit. And that's what a therapist is for because they're managing their own bits in their own ways. And so, yeah, it's I haven't been in the pit for about six weeks now. And I've had a couple of little things pop up where I can like see the pit. You know, it's like the pit pops out a little. It's like, you sure you don't want to come hang out? But I'm feeling really balanced. Um, and that is 100 percent because I have found a therapist to talk through some of this stuff with. And honestly, the like breaking point of that was I did an episode, I guess probably about six weeks ago, where I had um, started the episode and I'd been in the pit, but I was like, I'm out, I'm fine. And the episode's called Views from the Pit. And I'm about 10 minutes into the episode and I completely break. And it was so intense. And I, I just like completely broke down on the pod and was really honest with myself and my listeners that I wasn't okay. And that week I started working with a therapist and I was just like, it was such a big moment. And I almost didn't post the episode. I was like, this isn't, this is way too much for anyone to see because it was the most vulnerable I've ever been. And I really figured out how bad it had gotten like live <laughs> and that was pretty fucked up. And I think it was, it was a really important moment for me and pushed me to really prioritize finding someone and I spent the next two days doing that, and here we are, out of the pit. Uh, it's been pretty wild. Well, hello there, babes, and welcome back to another episode of Your Place or Mine. I almost didn't post again this week because I, because I was in the pit for a bit. I didn't schedule anything, so I had nothing recorded with someone. 
And obviously, a big reason about the pit is this fucking single shit. Ah, I'm just so fucking sick and tired of all of this. And I am starting to, I think it's twofold. Because on one hand, 50% of me is like, okay, babe, you need to start figuring out ways to live your life single for the rest of it. Because it's hard to believe that there is a light at the end of this tunnel. Another little voice waver. <laughs> so 50% of me is like, you need to start, like boundaries have to go up, like lock everything down, learn to live as this solo entity because history is telling you that it's just not going to happen. And maybe I had the experience of, of love in the past and I just ticked it off early. And now that's it. I've like run through my opportunities and now it's just self-love. That's what we get. And friendship love and family and whatever, that's fine. But if you live the rest of your life single and on your own, like there could be worse things than experiencing that. Like I have such great friends in my life. I have all these other really positive things. Obviously, that 50% of me is not a positive side <laughs> and very pit heavy. And you know when you're in a pit and you like, when you're in a pit, the number one thing you want to do is stay in the pit, right? That's got to be relatable for other people. Your goal isn't to get out of the pit. Your goal is to be in the pit, not move, not do anything, just exist with no responsibilities <laughs> And hope that time passes. And this 50% of me that's feeling this way is like trying to like separate myself from a person who has a need to be loved and wanted and appreciated. And trying to figure out how I can get some of those needs met in a platonic way if this is it, you know? There's a very real part of me that's creating this list of reasons why I'm not a valuable partner, why I'm not good enough for seemingly anyone. I'm not interesting enough, I'm not funny enough, I'm not attractive enough, I'm not thin enough, I'm not quiet enough, I'm not... We're just so good at highlighting all of the reasons why we feel completely unworthy of love and affection and attention. And I feel like I could write a fucking novel on why I am completely undateable. And that sucks because the book I had about why I'm so fucking awesome was really good. And I really believed it. But I don't know if I do right now. And it's really hard not to feel like I'm doing everything wrong. Everything about me is wrong. I don't see a solution. I really pride myself in being a very confident person. And I've, I had an episode early on called My Complicated Confidence, and it really talked about my journey through the mess that has been my sense of self and my sense of self-confidence. And I am in such an amazing place with it. And I think during the pandemic, I spent a bunch of time not dating and really getting into meditation and manifesting and and really, like, I feel like I got to a point with myself where I was so fucking in love with who I am and my own skin. And then we get back into the world and I was facing so much rejection from men and it was just happening so frequently. And it really started to tear away at 
this confidence armor I had spent so long building for myself. And I hated the idea that I could let the rejection of people who weren't right for me pull away at something I'd spent so much time investing in. And the focus that I'm like, one thing I'm really working on in therapy is being able to separate those two things of who I am as a person and who I am in a relationship. Like there, there is a separation in that. And I think being an entirely whole human on your own is so important and very challenging to hold on to. But being able to flip where whether or not I'm in a relationship doesn't mean I'm unlovable or undateable. It just means that the right person isn't here for me right now. And that doesn't mean they don't exist because we leave, live in a city with so many people and in a world with so many people that it is absurd to think that someone hilarious and awesome and smoking hot like me isn't going to find someone amazing. And I think I really needed like the reasonable, rational side of me to remember that because logically it's obviously I'm going to meet, I'm going to meet like not only someone amazing, but probably a whole bunch of really amazing people over the rest of my life. And that's exciting. And it's doing that shift back from getting away from this scarcity mindset that there isn't anyone and dating is trash and men are bad and blah, blah, blah to what I felt when I first moved to Toronto and the abundance of opportunity. And that's a big focus for me this summer is just getting back to the magic of possibility because there's a fuck ton of that here. And it's really, really, really cool. Like it definitely alleviates pressure. And even just like when stuff comes up, I know I have someone to talk about it with later in the week. So it's, it just doesn't like, Again, if it knocks me over, it's not like sitting on me like a brick. It's like, okay, okay. Like, yeah, it's fine. Like, you stay here. I'm going to deal with you this week. Like, don't worry. It's fine. I think that's a big piece of it. But I'm also unpacking trends and looking at, like, when – so, for example – uh, turns out I like being in control <laughs> and obviously a lot of people like that but because I'm so organized and so systems oriented I'm very used to being the one in control I have a very hard time letting go of control which is why comedy is great it's like a one-man game in a lot of ways producing shows I do that on my own it's again I run everything like I'm managing it and uh, turns out you can't do that with men. <laughs> it kind of has to be a, like a mix of control, you know, super fucking weird. Uh, so <laughs> I think that's a big thing that I've always known that that was something I had a hard time with. And that completely stems from being a kid and trying to hold everything together. And when I let go of it a little, everything fell apart. So obviously that will happen for the rest of my life. And so I'm trying to get more comfortable with loosening my grip in every aspect of my life. And that means a lot of different things. And that's definitely incorporated in my comedy life. And I think there's sides of that control that are so useful and helpful, like starting some of the groups I have and building up some of these opportunities. But then I also need to be able to step back and let them happen on their own. And I think that's a bit of a phase that I'm in with comedy right now with some of my groups and my shows. Like I do need to delegate a little bit and like maybe move some things off so that I can maintain good mental health and like make sure I'm not overextending myself. But I think that like, yeah, the being comfortable, losing a little bit of control, even in my schedule, like this week is the first week in at least two years that I had like five open days in a row in my schedule um, and that scared the shit out of me. Uh, and I was immediately like, oh, who should I make plans with? I should see this person. And, and I didn't. And it's been a really amazing week where I've been able to do some fun, spontaneous things. And I've been able to spend some time with myself and it hasn't been rushed. And I'm really just trying to embrace letting life happen a little bit because I think that's really healthy. interesting like when I was talking with a friend about uh like adult cartoons like I'm not really big into adult cartoons like sure I watched Simpsons growing up or whatever but when all these new ones came out I haven't really liked any of them 
And I did. I liked Big Mouth because I like a bunch of the people in it and it's funny and sexy and whatever. That's fun. But I think part of my aversion to adult cartoons is is totally connected to my childhood. And like I didn't really get a lot of that fun kid stuff. So it brings up weird emotions in me. And I think they're even around like play. Like I didn't I didn't learn to ride a bike as a kid. And I like taught myself how to bike during the pandemic, which was terrifying. And I did it at like 10 o'clock at night on dark trails. So no one would see me, (laughs) but there's just so many things that I didn't get to figure out when I was a kid and I didn't get to have fun with. And comedy is so fun and it's so playful. And I think even with sex, like sex should be play, sex should be fun. And I think my relationship with sex is awesome. And I did, like, I spent so much time figuring that out that it was, that's a place where I can let go of some control and just enjoy the moment. And I think I am looking for other aspects of my life where I can just be in it and enjoy it. And there's something about comedy that forces you to be present on stage. Because as much as you figure out what you want to say and where you want to go, stuff's going to happen. People laugh in different ways than you expect, or they don't laugh. Things happen last minute and your set is shorter or longer than you were expecting. Maybe there's four people in the audience. Maybe there's a hundred people and you just weren't planning for it. Like it does really force you for those, whatever, seven to 20 minutes to just be in it and exist. And I think there's something so freeing about that. Because if you fuck up, you can't go back. Like, all these people saw it, you know? Like, it's live. And I think there is something about that that feels so much like play. And it feels risky, but not in a way that has massive effects. Like, sure, maybe it feels different if you're, like, going on stage for JFL. And if you bomb there, that has pretty reasonable effects. But for the most part, most shows, it's like if it's not your best show, it's not the end of the world. Like it's not like no one's ever going to book you again. It was that show. So I think there is a freedom and play to it um, that becomes more free and more playful the more comfortable you get with your material. And I really think I'm moving into that place now where I'm able to be way more conversational and flexible on stage. And it does feel like the same energy you feel when you're in elementary school and you go out for recess. Like it's just, it's fun, it's playful and it's exciting. I think writing is a little bit more studious. Um, I think the passive writing where I think of something dumb and then write it like that's so fun and playful But then the like sitting down and doing it is like, I feel like there's a chapter of it that's like, okay, now we put in the work and like, let's actually be really methodical about how we organize this. And then once you have it set, then you can go play again. Uh, I think there's a a part in the middle. And that also means that part will get swept, like will get postponed if something else is up. It's like, well, I can do this tomorrow because it does require a little bit more discipline. Um, But then the value in getting past that stage and then being able to play with new jokes is even more fun than playing with your old jokes. So there's like an added thrill and an added, I guess, like benefit, like more of a reward from working yourself through that. I think I'm going to let it happen. You know, I um, I had some fears Uh, at the start of this season that kind of my OG listeners were going to be mad at me or disappointed in me that I was going in a new direction. And the amount I was talking about comedy, I was afraid that people would get bored. And I tried to kind of mix it up with, with what I was doing. And then I real, like, I think my listenership just has really shifted. And when I first started the pod, I had no idea who would listen or if anyone would. And people started listening. And I have way more listeners than I had in the beginning. And I know that each season, I think my listener demographic will shift. I had a big spike in like a male comedian starting to listen to my podcast this year, which was super surprising. I think they just wanted to listen and hear if they were being shit talked or not, which is so funny. Um, but I think 
the people who were there for the spicy stuff were surprisingly really there for the vulnerable stuff. And that kind of caught me off guard. I think initially I thought that it would be like there's certain episodes for certain people. And I, I didn't really think that people would want all of it. And I think I have a lot of really loyal listeners now who do like wait for each episode to come out. And and I think doing that last episode where I had a bunch of people submit reviews on what they thought of the pod, like, oh, my God, I bawled my eyes out listening to some of those. But there was like a whole bunch of different things people loved about it. And it wasn't just about the spicy stories. It wasn't just about comedy. It wasn't just about vulnerability. It was a little bit about all of it. And I think the as much as the podcast has changed, obviously the constant has been me. And my like who I am has evolved since I started the podcast. But I just think if we look at who I was when I started the podcast and who I am now, I am just way more me than I was in the beginning. And I think that might have always been the goal to figure out what I was doing, what this chapter was. Uh, and the podcast has just been such an interesting way to unpack my own evolution really publicly in a way that felt surprisingly comfortable and safe. And I think the community that's built up of listeners is very aligned with my community within comedy. And there's a lot of overlap in that group. And it, made me realize that there's so many other people who are dealing with their own pits and their own issues with open mics and their own issues with being single. And there's so much that connects us on such a human level that wherever I am over the next year will be relatable to a whole new group of people. And I think the reasons for starting the podcast and the reasons I'm still doing it have really shifted. And it does feel a little bit like my version of therapy and journaling. And I think it allows me to unpack some things that are really important to me. And and who knows? Maybe I have a big hoe phase in the fall and it goes back to being really spicy, you know? Like, I think there's a freedom in kind of, like, letting go some of the control of where I think it's going to go and just allowing life to happen and then continue to document it in some different ways. Uh, and I'm excited to see where it goes because I have no fucking idea. And that's super cool. Like, to, like, when I started this podcast, I didn't even have a thought in mind that I would ever do comedy. And now it's so much of my life. Like, it's just, it's really, really cool to see how things have evolved. And I'm fucking stoked to see what's next. <laughs>